on music, the podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sound. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. David Rothenberg makes music with nightingales. Or is it the other way around? Who gets to decide about the agency of the other species? About the relevance of aesthetics? About what beauty and pleasure mean in an exchange between animals and humans? Rothenberg, a philosopher and musician, tries to find out by way of doing. He grabs his clarinet, heads to urban parks and forests, and interacts with this most lauded of birds in human culture, the nightingale. The same bird that scientist Tina Roska has been studying for years, analyzing its brain and its behavior, and most importantly, how nightingales learn their unique song and why they sing. This is an invitation to follow the paths of Rothenberg and Roska, an invitation to chirp along the joys of making music with nightingales. So the nightingale is a very special bird. I think it, the first thing that's special about the nightingale is what we hear about it in literature, in culture in folklore, in poetry. This bird contains a lot. It's this ultimate romantic symbol. It's a bird that sings something more beautiful than life. It's larger than life. And like many people, probably most of us learn about this bird first by reading about it, hearing stories about it, rather than actually hearing it. So the first important thing about the nightingale is it's a symbol of this kind of ultimate romantic Superbird. Poor melancholy bird that all night long tells to the moon thy tale of tender woe. Sweet bird of sorrow, why complain? The lingering cadence doth prolong? Sing on as if in pain. And dreaming, thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. Wilt thou be gone? No hungry generations tread thee down. Poor melancholy bird. When I actually heard one for the first time, I was surprised that it did not sing this mellifluous, ultimate melodic song, but a kind of rhythmic, noisy, electronic-sounding, scratchy collection of rhythms and beats, much more like techno music than ancient melodies from history and literature. And this is what got me interested in the bird in the first place. (laughs) 
David Rothenberg is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He investigates the musicality of animals and the relationship between nature and humanity. His book publications include the titles Why Birds Sing, Bug Music, Nightingales in Berlin, and most recently, The Possibility of Reddish Green. As a composer and clarinetist, Rothenberg has published more than 30 recordings and has collaborated or performed with Pauline Oliveros, Peter Gabriel, Mamadou Kelly, and Suzanne Vega, among others, and with humpback whales, cicadas, and nightingales. Now, in terms of science and biology, the nightingale has this other role in that this bird is kind of an outlier. It's an extreme animal. It sings so much such a complex song, much more complicated than most other songbirds. Why does he need to sing all night when all these other birds do find just singing short, very recognizable, simple songs? And there's no easy scientific answer for that, except the notion that uh, biology, evolution, sometimes creates these extreme, wonderful, beautiful things where, where a feature evolves and sexual selection just lets it run and get extreme. Why they sing is, of course, an important topic in ornithology, birdsong science. And I guess the most accepted response to that is that it has two main ecological functions, the song. One is mate attraction and the other is territory defense. Tina Roska is a behavioral biologist working at the Max Planck Institute for Empirical Aesthetics in Frankfurt. She focuses on the behavior of animals, especially of birds, and its foundations in their neural systems. Among Roska's main research areas are animal communication, social interactions during song learning, and rhythm and melody in music and bird song. But one point has been made recently that neither of these functions of territory defense or mate attraction can explain the intricate structure of the song. So why the song is beautiful, not only to birds, but even to us, why there's these many, many different notes, why there's the strong structuredness within a song type, why there are motifs and themes. This cannot be explained by in terms of territory defense and mate attraction, because for those two purposes, it would be totally sufficient if birds just try to scream the loudest, like stags do. The bellowing of stags is like telling everybody, I'm the loudest, I'm the strongest. And that does not require any intricate structure. Why does the peacock have this giant, beautiful, magnificent tail that must be a lot of work to carry around? Why does the nightingale sing all night? Why does the humpback whale sing for 24 hours? These are extremes of what evolution can produce. And it's such a very interesting, you might have heard the phrase, extremes don't make good examples if you're trying to understand how the world works. But of course they do. They make some of the best examples. They show the utmost that nature is capable of. The reason to develop complex sound patterns that contain these motifs or themes or variations must be another one. 
And an alternative explanation that can account for this is this complexity might have evolved because the animals actually like it. So that introduces a component of subjective pleasure into the evolution of singing because song might drive emotional responses like pleasure, liking. The common nightingale, Luscinia megarinkos, is a small songbird native to Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's the national bird of Croatia, Iran, and Ukraine. In breeding season, unpaired male birds sing at night, their repertoire consisting of about 180 up to 260 song variations for a single bird. The nightingale's song is an acquired skill. In the animal world, only whales, dolphins, songbirds, and humans can learn through sound, at least as far as we know. We often think science is a more rigorous form of knowledge than art, and it simply isn't true. It's just a different way of seeing the world, and the more science recognizes that, the healthier we're going to be to understand the different things. There's no contest between an artistic approach and a scientific approach. They serve different functions. Actually, with something like birdsong, um, a behavior that is really close to our music making, that context illustrates nicely how both approaches have their merit. Luli, The subjective part of music cannot be replaced by an explanation. It's qualitatively different from an explanation, my subjective pleasure when I listen to music or to birdsong. It's not a smart idea to say rational explanations can replace subjective pleasure-based approaches because there's something totally different. Science is about fact-checking, scrutiny and evidence and saying this seems to be true because XY and that seems to be untrue because XY. And arts are not about that. Arts are about engaging in a pleasurable way with something. And I think when somebody makes music with a bird, the pleasure you get out of engaging with a totally foreign being and with making, like building a bridge across species that is something so beautiful and so fulfilling and so fun, no rational explanation can compete with that feeling. the woods they heard the charming noise of chirping birds and tried to frame their voice and imitate. Thus birds instructed man and taught them songs before their art began. Lucretius. 
Art does not wait for humans to begin. Gilles Deleuze and Félix Gattari. People often ask me, okay, come on, are the sounds made by birds and other animals, are they really music? And there I think back to what I learned from John Cage, another big influence on me, the composer and philosopher of music and art, who said, you know, he's famous for writing a piece that's supposedly all silence, four minutes and 33 seconds. But it's not all silence. There isn't even any such thing as silence, according to Cage. What he does in this piece, which has no notes to be played, is get everyone to listen. Just listen to the sounds that are there. He wants you to take sound seriously, as any composer or musician should. Take sound seriously. Just take it in. Listen to what's there. We don't know what music means, but we know it's immensely meaningful to us. It's a kind of philosophical, confusing way of talking about it. But I guess I'm kind of saying, like, you don't have to analyze it to get it. Or it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. You can't explain why music matters to people. It just does. And if you recognize that this is going on in other species, they're a lot more comprehensible to us. We are highly aesthetic species. We engage in a lot of aesthetic behaviors. We design all our surroundings. Everything we surround ourselves with is also beautiful. It's not only functional. And maybe by studying animals like birds and their song or their feathers, we can learn more about ourselves that way and why, how come we engage so much in these aesthetic behaviors. I personally think that birdsong is much closer to music than to language, but music and language already share a lot. So they're both hierarchically structured, they're both learned, they're both culturally transmitted, even just in humans. The main difference there, I guess, is language has meaning and it has combinatorial semantics and music has none of that. There can be sometimes very rudimentary instances of music having meaning or we add words to music then of course it has the meaning but that is via language so music does something else than transmitting combinatorial meaning it's mainly there to entertain us to keep us sticking with listening
But still people keep asking, come on, do you really think this is music? Do you really think this is music? And, you know, I would answer, I know this is music. I'm not sure what humans are doing is music because we've just been doing it a few thousand years, maybe 10,000, maybe a few hundred thousand years. These birds have been singing for millions of years. We know these songs work. They're part of the evolution of nature. They are the real classical music. They are the real stuff that's been around that we know has a place in the evolution of life. That's pretty serious. know how their songs are structured but knowing expecting about how it proceeds means the singer can play around with his expectations he can fulfill our expectations and that gives us a sense of fulfilled expectations of calmness of happiness he can create tension by not fulfilling the expectations and delaying the gratification of fulfilling them so that would create tension Or the singer can disappoint our expectations, do something completely different and create surprise by that. And both birdsong and human music, they use these mechanisms to interest their listeners, to keep the listeners interested. And it's very effective in driving these emotions like surprise or satisfaction just by listening to sound sequences and having your expectations, anticipations fulfilled or not. Animals are interacting with us. The very notion of mimicking, copying, is, I think, an anthropomorphic, anthropocentric, limited sense of what it means to interact with animals. I don't want the bird to copy me. I don't want to copy the bird. I want to make something together with the nightingale that neither of us could make alone. The notion of humans and birds collaborating has been around as long as there's been human music. What's interesting in the 20th century is you have composers like Stravinsky, like Olivier Messiaen, who say, okay, look, in my century, we've opened up the sense of what kinds of rhythms, harmonies, and melodies count as a musical thing. So let's really transcribe what the birds are doing, and let's get people to play these things that might be hard for us at first that are much more bird-like. That's pretty interesting. And Olivier Messiaen really took this seriously. He went out and transcribed bird songs very exactly, very rigorously, and then handed the scores to musicians who then said, I can't play this. And he said, yeah, you can play it. You just have to learn a different sense of what music is. You know, he was an amazing pioneer in doing this. He got a lot of people interested in the musical possibilities of birds. <laughs> In the artistic hierarchy, birds are the greatest musicians that exist on our planet, said composer Olivier Messiaen. He wrote his Quartet for the End of Time with its third movement, The Abyss of the Birds, in 1940, in a prisoner of war camp in Germany. Messiaen wrote, The birds are the opposite to time. They are our desire for light, for stars, for rainbows, and for jubilant songs. It's still seen as radical to take that 
animal music seriously. I don't know why that is. I think when you go to electronic music, many of the sounds that come out of modular synthesizers and computers and the way these sounds have been developed, really, even the way the sounds are made, kind of logically, mechanically, is very much like what bugs do, like what insects do. Insect music is really, insects are like the first synthesizers. Weird noises, and, and people always like the sounds of insects. Maybe just growing up surrounded by singing insects led people to want to invent synthesizers in the first place. Who knows? What can people learn by making music with animals? Well, what can people learn by making music? Well, music brings us joy. It brings us value. It brings us uh, a sense of, of groundedness and, and meaning in the world. And yet we cannot explain easily what it means. You know, that's why philosophy of music is so frustrating. What can be said? It's just here. And there's this wonderful sense by which you can totally appreciate and get the music and have no idea what it's all about. And you can also analyze how it all works and then still have not be moved by it. For music to work doesn't depend on all the information you learn about it. A new territory emerges when human and non-human musicians find common ground by creating a common rhythm. Making music with animals is a sonic thought about an alternative to anthropocentrism and a rethinking of power structures. Louisa Cullenberg. In a way, the great thing about music is it can be instantly immediate without you learning anything. But what we can learn by making music with animals is we can learn kind of where our culture comes from. It's well recognized now that many species of animals have a sense of culture similar to what humans have, which means technically they can be genetically identical groups that learn different behaviors and pass them on from generation to generation. That's what culture is in the scientific sense. The genetics doesn't determine exactly what birds do, what whales do. They learn stuff and they teach it to each other. They have different cultures. And so uh, we can learn by just taking, just whether or not it's true or not true, just say, this bird is a musician. I'm a musician. Let's play along together, see what happens.
Yeah, people of a critical mindset are often saying, these animals are doing things important to them. You're just imagining they're important to us because we like music. You're imagining they sound a little like human music. And so, uh, you know, you're just twisting them into our human way of seeing things. And that's a valid point, I suppose. But I still feel it's more important to twist humanity into something that fits into nature. Like maybe, maybe if we just understand ourselves enough, we might be able to make something as musical as what birds are doing, as what whales are doing, as what insects have been doing for millions of years. Maybe we can equal that by just tuning in a little bit better than we do. Because otherwise we're just ignoring the beautiful, uneven evenness of the rhythms of nature. We're making things exactly regular with machines. Squaw, 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 squaw. I think this is something that is extremely useful because it may give us a lot of motivation to use science-based approaches to fight climate change and biodiversity loss. But the motivation might come more from these experiences that artsy approaches might give us or approaches of like more loving approaches of engaging with animals, for instance. So having this way of engaging with nature that is fun, that is pleasure, is one thing that is important and cool and fun. And the scientific approach of fact-checking scrutiny evidence is something completely different. And both together, I think, are absolutely essential when we try to, yeah, as, as a species collectively, to deal with the problems that we created in our world and to find a way out. I think many more people should do this. It's just something we should do. It should be part of all music education. The music isn't just people. It's also animals. It's nature sounds. It's the sounds of machines. It's, it's making sense of the value of sound around us and celebrating us, celebrating it, listening to it, and trying to build a world in which we fit in and don't overly dominate. We can be better species we can be a better animal by listening and learning from what's around us it's just a good thing to do it's not going to hurt you take the sounds of birds seriously as music this was chirp along the joys of making music with nightingales part of the On Music podcast series produced by Haus der Kulturen der Welt with David Rothenberg and Tina Ruska. The quotes in this episode were Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Louisa Kullenberg, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, John Keats, Titus Lucretius Carus, Mary Darby Robinson, Christina Rossetti, William Shakespeare, and Charlotte Smith. Music and sounds by Brood X Band, Felicity Mangan and Stina Janvin, Olivier Messian, David Rothenberg, Lucy Vitkova, Julia Pokerfeld, as well as Cicadas and Nightingales. Narration by Sarge Lynch. Recording, production, and editing by Julia Pokerfeld. Additional recording by Matthias Hartenberger. Interviews and script by Arno Refiner. On Music Sound logo by Alexandra Cardenas. Fem-
Atlas on Music, the podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sounds. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin.